I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This is the way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great. But the enthusiasm of the people has been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt. And I have so many great memories of being down there. Welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. Scott Warren here, and as always, riding shotgun is Matt Mollica. Hey, Matty. Hi, Scott. Good to see you. Good to talk about one of the best courses in the country today. Really psyched to uh, have a couple of good guests to chew the fat over Royal Adelaide. Indeed. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. I want to get to goals first, though, because we had our goals, ep- uh, goals episode last. We set ourselves some goals. We missed one goal immediately. Uh, which was our first and 15th of the month. But I feel like that could be our goal each month. And some months we'll get there, some months we might not. But um, on your other goals, any progress you want to report back? Uh, The weights have gone up at the gym a little bit. We're already down or one month down and um, progressed there a little. Uh, The focus on professional development work-wise has sharpened. I've got a little bit there. Some progress with the book that I was talking about and uh, probably the most exciting for the most uh, for the most people listening, the the trip to the US uh, in terms of firming up details and seeing other courses while I'm over there. Uh, that looks like it's fallen into place, thankfully. So you never you never 100 percent sure of these things. Never never talk about yeah. them until there's a peg in the ground. But uh, yeah, yeah. hoping to see a couple of good courses while I'm in the US, and and that's looking increasingly likely. Mm. I was going to say, you'll believe you're playing there when you turn right past the water park. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. How about you? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I started I started Spirit of St. Andrews last night. Oh, well done. So, And I'm like a chapter and a half in, two chapters in, and I've already circled about 35 different passages that are just perfect. So... I'm stoked to keep reading that. Uh, my wife's impressed that I'm reading a book at night and not just scrolling Instagram videos, so that's good. Um, I've got through, I think, 13 workouts year to date, which is just a little bit behind pace to get to my 150, so that's that's something that I'm chasing. Uh, no progress on the swim, although I did go to a wedding a couple of weeks ago and during the after party I was telling everyone who would listen about this goal of mine, so I'm on the hook not just to our listeners, Matty, but to people I actually know who are now expecting me to produce or maybe not expecting me to produce, I'm not sure. On the golf front, I want to get back under four. I'm down to 4.8 from 5.2 when we recorded, so two flags from two rounds, so that's good. Well done. And I said I want to make match playing club champs. I've actually managed to get a start in the New South Wales Cup, uh, which is Feb 8 to 10, which is a WAGA-rated event that because New South hosts a few choppers get in the field as well, and I am going to be one of them. So I think that's a really good, like, I do not belong in that field. So good opportunity to play under pressure. There's a 36-hole cut. I mean, in a crazy wild world, I would make that cut. But at this point, I've told my wife I'm playing golf Thursday, Friday, and Saturday probably looks unlikely. But, yeah, testing myself, which is good. Nice. Well done. Well done. Well, it's nice that look, we won't check in every episode, but it's good just to keep a bit of accountability happening on the on the goals. So now the other news around Australian golf in the last week or two has been cats out of the bag now, and they've they've 
been sharing some pictures and a little teaser video here and there. No Laying Up was in Australia for about 12 days filming a new season of Tourist Source. Obviously, big fans of No Laying Up will know that season one, kind of the the proof of concept of Tourist Source was Australia, which was really the Sandbelt and Barn Burgle filmed on iPhones and they were here for five days. So not really a full Tourist Source as we've come to know it. So Australia is going to be is going to be a great series, kind of Australia in full, you know, excluding Queensland and WA. But, you know, New South, the course we're talking about today, most of the sand belt, we saw some pictures from Cape Wickham where it looked very sunny but also very windy. So I'm stoked to see that. I spent a few days with them in Sydney showing them around. Bonnie Doon got a start. Uh, and was in the best condition I've seen it since the Renault was complete. So I'm really stoked that Bonnie Doon is going to be showing its best self to that to that audience. And don't want to give too much away, but there was some good golf played that day, not by me. Uh, Matty, you had a bit of time with me in Melbourne? Yeah, I uh, had a round Thursday of the week before last, and they had some other guests for another day at RM, and some other companions for around at the Heath. Yeah, really, really just great to see them. They're just the, the best guys, just great company and mm-hmm. wonderful to spend time around. Love golf. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they produce this time around with a couple of dedicated people filming it. So they've had Ross Flanagan, uh, Cody behind the lens and uh, Kevin, Kevin, someone Jackson. else assisting yep. them as well so last time when they were down here with zach blair they were really filming it on phones and one camera and shooting while playing and i I feel like they will have done the trip justice this time um with Mm. with much more professional photography and i i suspect that ross has had the drone out both early and late particularly down king island and and over the sand belt as well so that should just that should be really additive because um, he's just he's just thrived doing that over the last year or two. The more time he spent behind the lens, the better he's got. So, mm. and of course, the last couple of tourist sources, you know, Michigan and Scandinavia. It's the off course stuff that's as good as as watching the golf. It's seeing them be tourists. And I think I've seen a little bit of teaser footage of Big Randy trapping Lucas Michelle LBW in the middle of a road at what looks like midnight. Um, Bit of haircut action for those who know season one. That's reprised. So I think that's going to be really cool. Um, And I'm stoked that they made the effort to get out of Sydney and Melbourne and get over to Adelaide for a brief stop and some golf. And um, they played on that game with our co-pilot for today. Uh, Talking about Royal Adelaide, Maddie and I both know it and love it, but we don't know it as well as this bloke. Uh, Terry Thornton, welcome to Australian Golf Passport. G'day, Scott. G'day, Matthew. Thanks for having me along. Interested to talk about Royal Adelaide? Of course, I really, really love So Terry, for those who don't know, is the second best export from the country town of Finlay in New South Wales. Number one, obviously, being the 90s rock band Spiderbait. Uh, he's a 20-year <laughs> member at Royal Adelaide, and he's currently on the course subcommittee there. So knows it as a golfer, knows it as, you know, part of the, the team that's presenting it at its best week in, week out. So really keen to... Hear what Terry thinks. Hear how maybe our views as occasional visitors might be the same or different to someone who knows it, you know, inside and out. Yeah, it's it's been a few years since I've visited. I've, I've 
played it a handful of times in my life and have really, really strong memories of every trip to the course. Can remember every single hole on the layout, which I think in itself is a great sign. But yeah, we're not going to um, we're not going to flesh out the details as well as Terry. So pleasure to have him here. I had a couple of little questions drafted up to kick things off, Terry. Yep. Scott, as as Scott had said, you've um, you've been there almost twenty years now and developed a great affinity for the place. How would you describe Royal Adelaide? someone who's never visited, someone who's never played it? Okay. Um, firstly, it's placement within Adelaide. We're on the western suburbs of Adelaide, which is the coastal side of Adelaide, not the, um, as per the you know, Sydney, Melbourne, eastern, oh, sorry, Sydney, the eastern suburbs are on the water. Over here, the west is the water side. We're about 2Ks from the water, which, similar to Royal Melbourne, you're aware of it, and it affects the way the course plays with the winds, but... It's never really part of the course. The course itself is parts parts flat and probably half the course has got some medium-height sand dunes. Interestingly, there's a train line that runs right through the middle of the course. Um, so a bit of rise and fall on the course, but there are some flat holes, some, some holes that involve a bit of climbing. There are significant areas of trees that are adjacent to playing lines, I would call, in some places. But generally a very open course. You can see across the course, some parts of the course, you can see just about every hole. Um, we have a rotunda in the middle of the course on the high point and bar a couple of holes, you can see right across the course. So there's no blockages to your views across and um, that, of course, opens up options for play and all that sort of thing. The clubhouse unusually is more in the middle of the property. So you drive in past the practice range and across the 18th fairway to get to the clubhouse. And what that means is that the holes go around the clubhouse. So at the furthest point from the clubhouse is the 10th tee, which is 600 metres. So you never you have a, like an intimate feeling, I guess. You're never far away from the clubhouse. It's You can see it from a lot of places on the course. Uh, you don't feel like you're, you know, walking out to a different suburb and then coming back. It's not a not an out and in course. We don't come back to the, to the clubhouse. Um, after the the second green is near the clubhouse and then you gradually move yourself away from the clubhouse and don't return again until 13, you get close-ish and then out again and come back at 18. So there's some really good little loops of holes you can do as well. Um, but I guess, yeah, for a, for a large, expansive site, strangely enough, a lot of people, and I do as well, describe it as an intimate feel to the course. I reckon that's a great description. It's one of the first things that came to mind when I was recalling all of those visits to Royal Adelaide. It's it is a sizable property, and it does. Yeah, you, you have this you have this closeness. Not, never claustrophobic. It's never tight at any stage. But you, yeah, you do feel like you're never too far away from the clubhouse, and that everything's on a really comfortable and nice scale. How long has Royal Adelaide been at that site? Uh, opening day. Oh, it's either 1905 or 1906, as I recall. Um, it started in 1892, and there was a nine-hole course in the Parklands at North Adelaide. And then the next iteration, well, continuous iteration of it, was at Glenelg, somewhere near the current Glenelg Golf Course, and that was also nine holes. And then it moved to Seaton. The land that is on had been set aside for a... Um, housing subdivision and it had all been drawn up. Anyway, some people got a hold of all the parcels of land 
over a period of a few years and um, instituted the golf course, which was, yeah, either a, there's a, I, should, I walk past it every time, but there's a, a great old photo of opening day where the train disgorges its passengers and it's either 1905 or 1906. I think it's 05 if I had to put money on it. Okay. The train is a fantastic little curiosity and it appeals to interstate visitors and overseas visitors alike. It wasn't hard to find a photo from um, Lynx Gem's portfolio of the train going through while he was playing during his Australian visit back in 2019. You see it regularly enough when you play. Yeah, look, one of my simple pleasures in life, in golfing life, is uh, I play at the moment sort of three times a week and at least two of those days I actually catch the train to, um, to golf. There's a station on either side of the, the – um, before you, the train enters the property. So off the train and it's about a 12-minute walk to the pro shop. Um, I can't think of a more relaxing way to get to golf. Um, even so, yeah, basically someone's driving, driving you in a big vehicle that everybody gives way to. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a great way to get there. Listen to a podcast, read a book. My, um, I'm actually – like many people have a – a reasonable sized golf book history collection. I'm actually reading some instead of just looking at them now. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, the train is a curiosity, but it's a it's a great curiosity, and it sort of it harks back to you know all those English and Scottish courses that were opened up because of rail. Um, it wasn't that reason that Royal Adelaide was put where it was, but it's a it's a, a great thing. And another thing that it does with aerial photos or old photos of the course or people who have hand drawn plans. The railway line is there every time, so it's very easy to get a perspective on where mm. it was. I feel like maybe that the proximity of the train is what makes me feel the way I do about Royal Adelaide. I feel like it it's a bit, you know, androgynous in terms of where it feels like it is to me. I feel like if if you told me it was on the bottom end of Long Island near Garden City, that would feel right. Mm. If you told me that it was in the London Heathlands where, of course, the train's never far from a course and even Sunningdale has its own stop. You know, I believe, yeah, that, that feels like it's about right. If you, you know, were on a holiday to Pinehurst, North Carolina, and Royal Adelaide was one of the courses you played, that would feel about right. It's a weird course in that it feels like a lot of different places all at once. And maybe that's part of Adelaide being a bit geographically removed, not just from Sydney and Melbourne, but from the world, you know, quite remote, and it kind of has its own character maybe draws on a few different strings. Yeah, I'd say that, that that's right. I'd, I would assume that most of the um, developments in course design or construction, et cetera, whilst there was, you know, Royal Adelaide very hand in glove with Royal Melbourne, Royal Sydney as a foundation club. But I'd say, you know, with ease of travel back in the day, um, they were, you know, found their own way along a lot of the way. And so there would be those idiosyncrasies and differences that uh, you won't find elsewhere. Yeah. Now, before we get off the train, it's funny, we asked our listeners what they wanted to know, and a few people wanted to know about the course, but, Terry, the people want to know about the train. So the I have train. a couple of questions. Yep. How regularly does the train come? So okay. if you're playing around a golf, how many times are you getting to see a train come through? Yep, Monday to Friday, a train will come through in each direction every half hour. So you see two trains per half hour. It's only a single line. Mm-hmm. The same train going one way that you'll see come back 12 minutes later heading towards the city. Rightio. If you hit a train, do you get to replay the shot? Yeah, good question. You, uh, bylaws say you don't hit your golf ball if you're any chance of hitting a train. Um, gotcha. Um, 
Yeah, I assume you'd, yes, probably do. I, I don't know what the local rule is, but, yeah, they're very big on you. If there's any chance of you remotely hitting the train, just take a deep breath and wait. Mm-hmm. And are the tracks out of bounds? Are they, like, GUR? They just recently become a no-play zone within the last couple of years. They used to be an integral part of the course, no free relief uh, allowed. Uh, I believe in the 98 Australian Open, which was the last Australian Open played at Royal Adelaide, Craig Parry hit a ball onto the line and onto the very large stones. Assumed he was going to get a drop and quite a conversation, blue in nature, uh, occurred between he and the official that refused to give him a free drop. Uh, now, it's, for safety reasons, now it's now a no-play zone. So almost you call it a lateral hazard that you can't, you can't play out of, basically. It's, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that, but it's, that's basically how it plays. Very good. I'm glad we got the train out of the way. Excellent. There was one other tiny little curiosity. There was a question that, was it Charlie Ran had asked? And it might be an urban myth, but he had suggested that someone once drove and their ball ended up in a carriage only to be later deposited by a passenger on the green. <laughs> um, I have heard that story. And going back in the day, the carriages certainly had doors that you could open and, and keep open. Um, so, yeah, very possible. But uh, probably no one, no one still playing out there that would, would know for sure. Okay. And when Mackenzie visited during his famous 1926 trip to Australia, he visited Royal Adelaide and made some changes. He also he changed things around the train line as well so that you sort of hit across it a little more than was the case originally. He, he made some other changes as well that, that um, have been the focus of Renaissance golf work in the last 12 months from what we've been saying earlier. Yeah, that's right, Willie. Yeah. Um... He came to Adelaide twice on that trip, once just for a day. When he, he came, he, went, he I think he set up at uh, Fremantle, then the, the ship came to Adelaide and he was met at uh, the dock by some committee members from Royal Adelaide that took him down to the Seaton site, walked it and promised to come back the next month, which he duly did for three or four days, early November. Um, at the, the course that existed that he saw, you hit across the railway line three or four times from memory from the uh, the plan that's still up on the on the wall, and his brief was to do it so that you wouldn't have to play across the railway line. Um, it was starting to become safety issues, obviously, and the more times you the players have to cross the track, then the the greater the chance of something bad happening. So his brief was to a new layout, and one of the issues was don't hit across the railway line, which he duly did. The um, I think it's in our one of our club histories that the story was that he took his lunch and sat up on the June up on the third hole, what is now the third hole, um, with pen and paper. And by the time he'd finished his lunch, he had a, a rough routing that didn't hit across the railway line. And uh, they went from there. He worked fast. Um, he was quite the man, wasn't he? Yeah. I didn't know that he visited twice. There you go. Um, and, and Renaissance Golf have been doing some work over your spring and summer to holes 10 and do I remember rightly you'd said when you were here pre-Christmas 11 as well? Um, yes, yeah, some work around the uh, the 10th is a major change. The hole's still out of play. Um, some work on the tees at 11 and 13 and some changes to the bunkering on 12. Okay. So uh, that change to 10, I 
you know, you mentioned significant change. From what I have read and, and seen, that's, you know, that's been an upturned saucer sort of green. You know, people often refer to Pinehurst number two type greens, our turtle back greens. From what I understand, those changes make that less severe. And I feel like it's a bit, you get it for playability. And I don't, you know, if you play it every day, you might feel differently. I feel like it's sometimes a shame when those quite unique, severe greens get made more, you know, playable. Yeah, I, I do too. And quite often, um, nothing like being on a course subcommittee for people to um, point out how different aspects of the course are ruining their game and making it unfair. My usual response is go and play 10 pin bowling. There's a roof and it's dry all the time. And the ball go exactly where you throw um, it. Um, we haven't played it yet, as I say. I've walked on it a few times. It's still the same basic idea. It is still upturned. Um, it's going to be a green that requires, certainly to get near the pin, a, a very good shot and a half-decent shot to hold the green um, as well. If you, once the... I think the issue with the with the uh, previous iteration for most people was that hit a ball onto even the even not quite the apex of the green. Um, if you're not getting a, a reasonable amount of spin, then you you run off the bat mm-hmm. and you're a long way off the bat. Um, and then you know if it's a, a front pin, you might have might have over clubbed by half a club, and you're now looking at you know if you can get down in three from there, you've probably done okay. It, but by no means is it going to be an easy green. Walking on it, it, it just looks a slightly bigger scale than what was there, even though I don't know that the footprint has changed that much, but that's some of the genius of, of Brian Slawning, I think. And there's a, certainly room for more pins near the near the crown of the green. There's also a, a little lower area sort of would appear. Again, this is just from a walkthrough. Um, on the left-hand side, the, yeah, more a lot of interest in the green, I think. I trust that he's got he's got it right because he's he's the other green he rebuilt was seventeen green, which we'll probably talk about later. And it's probably my favourite green on the course. Okay. Yeah. It's it's easier to be comfortable about changes to beloved holes when it's someone like Brian Slornick or Brian Schneider or yeah. one of their cohort making the change. They don't yeah. get too many things wrong. No. I would have said they don't get things wrong, but then seventeen. <laughs> 17 are going to matter happen. So they don't get too many things wrong. You'd nominate 10 as one of the standout holes on the course, Terry? Would I? Um, not so much. I mean, there's it's, the course is a thing that's a, it's greater than the sum of its parts. There are some holes that, you know, I think you would probably in your, would retain in your mind's eye more than 10 when you get there. But it, um, the changes that he's done, the they main change was done to address boundary issues. With the large-headed drivers, it's a long way to hit it onto the the side road, but people have, do manage to. So we've uh, aligned the fairway a little bit further to the left, extended the short grass out that side. There'll be some plantings and some further reasons not to go down the right-hand side in the future. Um, and that, with the with the changes to that, was a was a an opportunity to to uh, change the green to make it more playable um, without losing its character. Um, but as far as, yeah, it's a very good hole and I, I enjoy it. It's a, a shorter hole. I think it plays about 330 metres. Um, but it does have a run out to stop anyone but the very, very longest bombers getting to the, uh, the front edge of the green. And it's, uh, again, because the green is difficult, you've got a, a wedge eight iron in your hand, depending on, 
on your window plays into the prevailing sou'easter, so sometimes it's a four-on. Um, but it, if, you know, with a short club in your hand, it gives you a chance to um, pull off a shot that you should get close, but you don't always hit the green. Yeah. I think that's where those greens can be really fantastic is when you've got most of the field hitting, you know, say a seven-iron or less, and good players hitting, you know, perhaps a wedge, there's an expectation that you should be able to hit a somewhat precise shot. And, you know, with a green like that where, you know, if you go long, there's short grass. If you leave it short, there's short grass. Obviously, there's a fair bit of bunkers around the flanks as there is on most of Royal Adelaide. I think I counted 98 bunkers this morning on the course. But a lesser player can miss and still be alive. But, you know, if you've got a good player with a wedge in their hand and they trampoline it over the back, that's a significant penalty for them. So I feel like yes, it's one of those good holes that allows everybody to to play golf the way they play golf. Yes, I'd say that too. And it's I think it's index 15 or something on the card, and it? it's one of the harder index 15s going around, I think, yeah. because of those those issues that you're talking about. Yeah, when I you – mean, you mentioned that it doesn't necessarily stick in the mind's eye in terms of iconic holes at, at the course, which we'll get to the, to the showstoppers. I feel a bit the same way about eight. I think everyone's so enamoured with three as a short four um, that eight, eight sort of gets a little bit overlooked. And I feel like that green that kind of sits so kind of oblique to the line of play, a bit like 10 at Riviera does, it's just a real puzzle of where to leave your ball. Yes, I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I know when I first moved to uh, Adelaide and played the course, so then I hadn't played the course at all before I moved there. I'd um, played Kionga on previous trips uh, moving over from Sydney, um, but hadn't played Royal Adelaide. And that was a green that I warmed to very slowly. A friend of the program, David Elvins, asked me after I'd been there about a week what I thought of the eighth green. He did that specifically. And... Um, I, I did. I don't think I praised it too highly at the time, um, but yeah, it's a great green on a nothing piece of land. It's mm-hmm. just flat as whoever's constructed it's done a very good job. It's got a a similar little um, mound of grass that sort of kept at mid length on either side of the green, rather than a close. There's a bunker sort of thirty meters short of the green, but the protection right at the green is a couple of uh, grass mounds that are kept a little bit long, um, a la the one on three. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, an, yeah, a green that's not easy to read um, and not certainly not easy to get close. I just have this great memory from the first trip onwards, that, that green just being so small and just requiring such a precise approach. And it was a really little, a great element of the round. You just thought, I just have to just have to hit a really good shot here. And it felt like you could because you had such a short club in hand. I'm not surprised that Dave asked such a pointed question, Terry, because mm-hmm. the, uh, the the subtleties and the qualities of that green won't have been lost on him. I remember him talking about the intimacy of the routing after his first trip there. I remember him talking about the course being like no other in Australia and having its own unique character and charm. And, um, yeah, it's very astute observation of Dave's. Mm. So. I think one of the other great things about eight, and it's it's also present in, say, three West at Royal Melbourne, perhaps a little bit there on 14 at New South Wales, is those drive and pitch holes where you can drive it 50 or 60 yards from the green without too much drama, but do you want a 50 or 60-yard shot into that green? And I think it it gives the opportunity for someone who knows their strengths and weaknesses or who understands, you know, good ball striking 
you know, I'd probably rather you drop me 100 yards, 110 yards from the green than 50. But it's right there open for you to hit one closer. I think it's it rewards smart play as much as brawny play. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, very much so. And I'm a little three is a little the same. If you uh, if you're good with a spinny wedge, throw it down there if you like. But uh, lesser people as myself, yeah, very happy with a with a full wedge or full gap wedge, and uh, try to stop it. Hmm. I wanted to when we got to three. I wanted to ask you what the what the play seems to be. You know, I assume you play with a range of players from from the high handicappers to the the young studs, and I'm curious how that how that tends to get played by good players when, you know, there's a, a card in their pocket that means something. Yeah, a, a good player generally means that they're very good with, the, with their wedge, with their lob wedge, whatever. So most of those will, will try and get it down to the, to the neck, to the front, regardless of a pin, where they may stand back a little bit. For me, the, the um, strategy the whole or the strategy of my tee shot will depend on pin placement because I'm not good with a floppy wedge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a back pin, I'm happy to hit it down there as far as I can because then I've got two thirds of the green to work with with my wedge play. Um, to a front pin, um, as far over the right hand side near the crest of the hill as I can possibly get to give myself a, a gap wedge and a good angle in. If I don't pull that off and I'm if I'm over on the left, then I'm either hitting to the back of the green and and hoping I can two putt down the length of the green and it's a very long green, or I'll hit to miss the green at the front and either putt or chipping up and down from the uh, from the, the neck of the green to a front yeah. pin. I think one of the cool things about those options you've just outlined is that it is only 250 metres to the front edge from the back tee. So it's not one of these short par fours that's not really drivable. I think a lot of people, particularly firm the way that RA is, and my recollection is once the hill's kind of taken out from tee to green, it's probably a little bit downhill. Yes. So 250 downhill, firm, particularly if it's downwind, everyone can can back themselves on a good day of having a pop. Absolutely. Um, in fact, it comes early in the round, of course. You're not quite sure how your driver might be behaving early on. So that that's in your mind as well. Um, in some ways, it'd be, it'd be a great hole later in the round, but it's a, it's a great hole to have if your match goes extra holes and, you, and a lot of matches will go out to that 21st hole. And um, mm. it's great for that sort of thing. So, Actually, um, you make me wonder, given that you mentioned that the course doesn't go back to the house at all, does does RA just exclusively have one tee starts or is there a second tee, you know, that people will go out to to start their round sometimes? No, generally one one tee start. We do have, you know, a, there's a winemaker's dinners and that sort of thing and they'll do a, a tee start on five and on 14, which gives you nine holes of each various shotgun starts and stuff, then they will start on one, three, five at times. I think we, we've got an opening day first Saturday of March. That's usually done as a shotgun start, and they'll start on certainly one, five, and 14 at least. So, yeah, there, there is certainly a lot of options there to do it, and people are known to sort of play one, two, and think, I think I'll just go back and have another wine. <laughs> right there, and <laughs> why not? You mentioned varying your strategy on 3T depending on pin position, Terry. Does the club give you tee sheets prior to the start of a round or will you walk up to the top of the rise and see where they've cut the hole that day? Or can you sort of tell from position when you're, um, when you're a bit forward of the tee? Yeah, you can tell, tell more or less. I, I, they don't give you uh, pin sheets. Uh, you can tell more or less from the tee. The pin is 
sort of twice the height of any other pin on the on the course, basically. Um, and depending on where it sits against the back the tree backdrop, you can tell whether it's a, a front or a middle back. Yeah, not not to the exact, but you certainly know when it's a front pin, and you can tell. Yeah, and you can tell when it's not, obviously. And if you if you're really super smart, you can get a you get a glimpse of it from the car park for those who drive in. Um. Yeah. Yes, you could. I don't. Yeah, you could. But yeah, I don't know that you'd be able to tell clearly where it was. But okay. Um, okay. you can certainly uh, see a little bit more from the train when I go. But... Nice. Nice little benefit for those who catch public transport to the course. That's it. I'm catching. That's one of the one of the things about golf when you you know, course layouts and whatever, is the opportunity to scope pins before you get to a hole and some of them aren't aren't available, you know, from certain vantage points. I know at New South, if you you want to know where the pin is on eight so you know how far to hit for your second and you have to remember to have a peak when you're playing three or else you get to eight and you're like, oh, you know, I forgot to know that. So, yeah, it's a nice little wrinkle, I guess, of of being familiar and and, you know, I guess the benefit of your intimate routing is that you get a look at most most flags before you get to them. Three is probably an exception there. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot. Even, even standing at the clubhouse, you can see that uh, two, four, uh, six, seven, without, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but uh, you don't always remember, of course. I love that element of courses. Love standing on seven green at Kingston Heath, just peering across to 17, thinking I'll file that in the memory bank and yes, yes. know where it is for two hours from now. Um, you mentioned 17 at RA before, Terry, and that is a hole that has changed and been the topic of a lot of focus and activity throughout the entire time of your membership. Um, to give the listeners a little bit of background, the original McKenzie plan for the course or his his map was found around the time that you joined or not long after? I'm not sure. But, uh, in my, It's always been on the wall framed in my time there so I'm not sure when it was first first discovered I wasn't aware it was if it, it was only then I wasn't aware to, um, that it was that new I must say as, as in a new find and that was really wow. that was really the genesis for for Clates making changes to 17 yeah I remember when Mike uh, got the job I um, I emailed him to congratulate him and asked him what uh, what the brief was and he was said, oh, basically to um, institute as much of the McKenzie plan it was, as was appropriate. They weren't you know, going to institute McKenzie's 10th and blow up the crater hole, but um, various other things. And the, so, yes, yeah, so the 17th was uh, was his attempt at um, creating the McKenzie, well, what was the McKenzie 17th off that plan? It's probably a controversial place to start in hindsight, and I think... You know, Mike might have made those comments himself that, you know, with a membership that's got a new architect, that was a that was a bold change. And that 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 was I played that version of the hole. That was a bold golf hole, maybe a bit shock and awe in terms of winning the members over. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know why that was chosen as um, as what work to do first. I wasn't part of course at the time um, or in the. Had any intimate knowledge of, of why that was chosen, um, but you're right—a very, very bold choice. The par five that it replaced, um, I thought, it was a very one-dimensional hole. It was a very, very um, nice, yeah, good to look at hole. It had some some great trees 
um, on the high point of the hole as the hole turned to the right. But um, I found I found I just played the hole exactly the same way every time, given my length and what have you, and didn't didn't provide a lot of options for me. Um, unlike a lot of the other holes on the course, so I wasn't sorry to see it, it change. But the end result, the membership were were certainly not not pleased with. But with Clates, you you know what you're going to you. He doesn't leave you wondering. You're not going to die a death of a thousand cuts. He's not going to be your course architect for 10 years and then you're going to look over your shoulder one day and say, my God, what's happened to us? Mm. You know, he's, he's bold and he, he does it. And, yeah, it um, didn't work out for him and for us. But, uh, yeah. And so there's been a redo of that whole by Renaissance as well as the construction of that little par 3 uh, 19th to call it, between between 17 grand and 18 tee that's obviously subbed in at the moment while you're working on 10. Um, So there's been little nips and tucks by Doak and his colleagues in probably the last, is it 10 years, nine years? I'm not sure. um, If you know how long he's been at Royal Melbourne, it was basically the same sort of, it was within a year or two of him um, beginning at Royal Melbourne that we convinced him that um, his time would be well spent at Royal Adelaide as well while he's in country. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's been, yeah, time goes quickly, doesn't it? But uh, I guess that's that's what it's been. So, uh, of course, Architecture Magazine has a story in March 2011 of Doke being announced as the new RM consultant. Okay. Yeah, we'll say, yeah, probably 2012, 2013 I would be my guess. Um, he took a little bit of convincing because it wasn't really, I think RM, obviously, he was never going to turn down as a McKenzie file, but... It took a little bit of convincing, I think, at the time to uh, to get him to sign up for us. Uh, ter- Terry, I seem to recall I played with you in October 2013 at RA, and I seem to recall that that Mike had moved on then, but there wasn't a maybe it was known that it was going to be Doke, but it hadn't been announced yet. Because yeah, yeah. um, certainly um, Mike's version of the whole <laughs> was still there then. Okay, yeah, yeah, and it stayed for a, a while. Um, the story, which um, when Doke came, Doke came and walked the property, and um, the story was that they weren't going to do 17 because whilst the membership, well, committee wasn't happy with the end result, there were other, they felt there were other holes that needed attention before digging that one up again and putting the membership through that again. But um, apparently while Doke was walking the course, so many members crossed fairways to tell him, go fix that hole before you do anything else. Um, yeah. The committee said, oh, well, okay, show of hands, and um, that's what they did. Um, yeah, it was quite polarising. There was, yeah, not everyone hated it, and some could appreciate some of the design elements in it. Probably the the green was very, very different than um, most of our other greens. It didn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't as subtle. Royal Adelaide greens are very subtle. I moved, as, as you know, moved from New South Wales Golf Club to Royal Adelaide and found I had to learn to read subtle breaks again because... New South Wales, when you get on a the green there, you know if it's left to right or right to left. It's a matter of how much and where, where you're brave enough to start it. Um, Royal Adelaide, to this day, I still misread a, a break, yeah, because there might only be a ball in it, um, a little left to right, a little right to left. Um, so the green that Mike put down was was had a lot of movement in it and it was a little bit perched, and that didn't sit well with people as well. Um, so, yeah, that, you're probably right on that timeline, 2013, as you say, shortly after that Renaissance Cup. You um, it's funny you mention you mentioned Doak coming into Royal Adelaide in those conversations, and it's it's ironic because obviously Tom Doak had a short-lived 
period as as New South Wales golf clubs consulting architect, just as Mike Clayton did at RA. And the first thing that New South Wales got him to do, and it was sort of initiated by the council, was to rebuild the sixth green. And obviously our sixth is our iconic par three on the cliffs. And I remember Doak saying, it is absolutely not my preference to start on a high profile or controversial hole because you're inviting half the people to hate your work from the start. Um, And if it was up to him, you would do that towards the end. Um, Of course, half the people hated what he did to that green. I think it's genius. Um, Half the people hated it. And within about 18 months, he wasn't our consultant anymore. So I think there's there's a lesson for architects there in starting with something very vanilla, you know, and, and Doak kind of said generally, you don't want to start on a problem hole because in his experience, problem holes are problem holes for a reason. There's not a simple popular solution to them. Um, so maybe, maybe that's the case at RA though. Is Renaissance's hole more universally enjoyed by the membership or are the old guys who remember the old par five still screaming for it to come back? Um, there are people that still prefer the, yeah, it's not universally loved, no. Um, and as I said earlier, that green is one of my favourites, but I play with plenty of people that that really, really don't like it. Um, six months ago playing it and there was an elderly gentleman and a uh, probably a chap in his sort of 40s standing to the side of the green, not not there to play golf. So I just wanted up, you know, introduce myself and, you know, can I help you with something? And the uh, the younger gentleman said, oh, this is my father. He was a long-term member here. He's come out here because he was told that they've destroyed the 17th green. And he hadn't <laughs> been a member there for 40 years. So, and that was a new green he was, he was coming to see, the, the existing, the current Slornik green that someone had told him was, was terrible. So he... Yeah, come out of the course for the first time in a long time. So, yes, but to, to your point, I think if an architect can do baby steps and build confidence with the membership, um, I think it's a great way to go, you know, get some get some money in the bank and uh, and work from there. But, I, again, I think with, with 17, I think the club said that's that's what we want you to do. It probably wasn't Mike's first first choice, but the, the master plan he did for the course, the booklet, um, which I think I've seen one at the lakes, and I think he did one at Grange. Um, his summation on on the seventeenth was that this has the potential to be one of the very best par fours in Australia, and yeah, that that was the the aim, and it certainly wasn't delivered. So yeah, um, by damn by his own words, I guess in that regard. Um, and as you say, you know, I, I think they recognised and they they would admit that it wasn't wasn't their best work, but yeah, as I say. Um, Probably because you know if we had him short-lived that we've ended up with Renaissance, and so the the end result has been been good for us. It's an interesting lesson for architects if there's if there's many out there that are listening. Clates fondly recalls the commencement of the, his commission at Victoria Golf Club. He was basically thrown a bone, and someone on committee said, "Let's give him four and seven and see what they can do. They can't <laughs> stuff that up too much." Uh, so, so non non confrontational work and uh, no contentious construction or holes to undertake, and they they did brilliantly with both holes and then continued on. So, as a as a brief aside, Maddie, because you mention it, uh, listeners should go to the Victoria Golf Club Instagram, um, and it'll be their most recent or you know, almost their most recent by the time you hear this and go there. Post on their grid 
is a video using drone shots by Will Watt from Contours Golf and audio from Mike Cocking and Jeff Ogilvy talking about the brilliance of Seven at Vic, you know, the role that the Bishops Gate at the front of the green plays, how they re- recaptured all that native vegetation. It's about a three or four minute video and it's absolutely sensational. So just a quick aside, that's something people should go and have a look at. I popped it on our Insta story the other day, but a lot of people won't have seen that. So um, sorry, yeah, back to RA, but I just wanted to drop that in. Well, I was going to make another slight deviation while we're chatting, and that was get some business done. I called into Burnley Brewing on the way to a round of golf, actually on the way to Lucas Michelle's 30th birthday party two Saturday nights back. I had plugged the Pineapple Poltergeist Hazy IPA during an ad read for our most recent podcast episode, only to get to Burnley Brewing and find out that it has completely sold out. So lesson for all listeners, if they hear us do an ad read for something that's a bit unusual or a bit of a new run, probably best to get in there sooner <laughs> rather than later if you want to yeah. taste something. They've got a uh, they've got a sour at the moment, a mandarin that's a figurative punch, not literal punch in the face. That's it's $18 for a four-pack and um, probably right up some people's alleys over summer. Probably not everyone's taste, but if you're into that sort of thing, their their Mandarin-inspired sour would be a fantastic summer drink. Uh, their their Tuesday night trivia's have kicked off, so yeah, a little bit of little bit of business there for Burnley Brewing. Thanks for their support. I've got a fridge full of takeaway options there in Bridge Road, Richmond. As I said, get in there before everything sells out. Do you reckon that pineapple poltergeist sold out on your recommendation, Matty? Are you like, a beer influencer now? I'd like to think so, but probably not. <laughs> Very good. Also, can I just say, if Lucas Michelle's thirty, then the rest of us are getting really friggin' old. Oh, that was a jarring. That was a jarring moment for me when someone said, "I'm going to Lucas's thirtieth." I was like, "Holy shit!" All right. So we've talked. We've talked Royal Adelaide three, eight, uh, seventeen, ten, the Crater Hole eleven, which is which is one of the famous holes and a fantastic green setting. We'll get some. We'll get some photos of that up on Instagram to coincide with this episode releasing so that people who haven't visited, they hear us prattling on about the course. They'll get a little bit of visual to, um, mm. to accompany this chat. There's, there's other holes. There's other standout holes, Terry, that you could draw attention to as well. Um, yeah, I think 14 generally is considered one of the best strategic um, holes on the course. Uh, bunkers for the drive on the right-hand side. And literally if you can get, right over the top of them or land right next to them. Um, there's a bit of a speed slot that'll throw you right down to, oh, I don't know, eight iron, seven iron, nine iron, depending on the wind wedge from the green. If you, there's half an acre of fairway to the left of them before you hit the car park, which does happen. Um, go over there and you're looking at sort of three iron hybrid into the into the green with a with a with either a force carry or a run through a, a the fairway runs out. Um, it's fairly hard ground that your ball runs through, and it usually won't stop there. But because the slope then up to the green is so steep, it's uh, all but impossible to run it through there and get up onto the green. Mm. So strategically, huge effort for, for taking on the trouble and playable, but a very, very difficult or a, a much more demanding shot if you leave it alone. I think... Someone told me when Doug did his original confidential guide that the bunkers, those fairway bunkers were some of the bunkers he sketched 
with a view to saying one day I'll build I'll build bunkers like this. These are the sort of things that that fit the ground well. Mm. That's that's absolutely a hole that when I think of RA, I immediately think of that, and I think of the five iron I had in kind of slightly uphill into that almost like an amphitheater of pine. You know, there's yeah. there's pine trees not encroaching on the green, but really surrounding it like a big seventy second green crowd, and you know, long iron slightly uphill is one of those just hit a good shot moments. I really enjoyed that. Mm. Great hole. Incidentally, the one hole where you do or can hit over the railway line at RA, that back tee's on the yeah, on the, the blue side. The, yeah, the blue tee is back there. Also, there's a blue tee on two now as well, a back tee, right. um, where you hit over the railway line. There's um, Brian Slornick also produced an extra white tee on two, which is requires a uh, shot across the railway line as well. Um, it's literally the, the white tee on two, the carry is about 20 metres till you're over it um, on 14 and uh, two blue tees and it might be sort of a 50 metre shot to carry. So it's not not what you call a force carry, but it, yes, they are shots over the railway line. Mm. They're specific, the blue tee one specifically just for add length to the hole. Yeah. I think golf's fun when you hit over stuff. Even if it's stuff that you can easily hit over, if there's something like a top shot bunker, you know, or even just some bushes, or in this case, a railway line, just hitting it over stuff is fun. Yeah, yeah. Even a, like a, a bunker that you know you're going to carry, like the, the well, it's not a, a bunker now, it's a blowout, but on 11, mm-hmm. uh, there's a huge blowout area that's right in your face and you should never go in it. But, you know, at my level and, and uh, less, we all do at various times because you just, you just don't quite get it as you should. And yeah. it's, uh, it's pleasing to get over and it's annoying when you get in. It's like the bunker on one at Lonsdale, Matty. I knew you were going to mention that. <laughs> I ums and ahed and ums and ahed. And... No, that's, that's legit. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that warranted it. I'm never o- going to I'm never going to live that down. O- Ogilvy Clayton put one in at Bonnie Doon in the original version of the 10th hole. And I remember saying to Mike Cocking, oh, it's a great bunker. It looks really beautiful from the tee and the practice green. I mean, no one good is ever going to hit in it. But, you know, it's a nice feature of the hole. And then the next round I played, I hit one off the sole of my driver that fortunately had enough speed to go through it and just hop out onto the lip. Technically, I didn't hit it in it, but yeah, those bunkers are good. And the one on 11 is a great shout, Terry. I think that's a perfect example of, you know, it's there in your face. Anyone who's played Swinley Forest, the second second hole up over the rise, there's that bunker benched into the, the rise, and it's just fun to hit over that. Whereas if it was a grass hill, you're just kind of hitting a shot. So... Yeah, I think 14 is one you don't hear a lot of, you know, people talk about the iconic holes and kind of the, the postcard holes. But, yeah, I think 14's a really clever hole. And at that late point in the round two, we often talk about on this podcast that that butt pucker moment late in a round when your card is clean and you think you're a chance. And, and 14 at RA really does challenge you to hit a really nice drive between the bunkers and the car park. And then a mid to long iron up a hill. And, you know, it's where you're sometimes you're not quite finishing your backswing and things can go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. 16 poses the same, another question down the stretch too. Got to stand up and hit a good shot there. Mm. It's a good time to tease our second guest for this episode, Matty, uh, who we will be exiting this episode with a little bit of him chatting about Royal Adelaide. We're going to do a full episode with him next up. Um, because there was so much in our chat, we just thought we can't squeeze it in. But 
1998 Australian Open champion Greg Chalmers said that 16, when we asked him his favourite holes at Royal Adelaide, um, 16 was one of the first ones he mentioned. Yeah. And for that reason, that late in the round, you've got a shortish club, but another turtle back green and you've just got to execute. I think I'm right in saying the Women's Open that we had there over the last few years, or going back a few years now, uh, 16 always played the highest over par on a percentage rate for the for the elite women golfers. You know, these LPGA mm. players playing probably anywhere from 130 to 150 metres in, and uh, they played the highest over its par than any other hole on the course. Yeah. I love seeing a short three do that to people because it's, it's one of those things that kills them because they knew that you had a short enough club, it's on you. Like nothing unfair happened, nothing unreasonable was expected. You just didn't execute. And, in yeah, fact, absolutely. Brian Walsh is um, caddying for Matt Griffin this week at the Victorian Open down at 13th Beach. And, of course, the 16th on 13th Beach, Beach Course, playing as the 7th this week, is 98, 100-metre par 3, slightly uphill. And so yesterday on Saturday, it played the highest over par of any hole on the course. Played yeah. 0.65 over par. So, again, just a great example of a short 3 just defending itself. What what are the prevailing wins due to 16 at Royal Adelaide, Terry? How do they complicate play? Yeah, it, it's never straight down wind um, and rarely straight in. We Normally, the, the prevailing summer breeze will be a quartering right to left, so probably out of about 4 o'clock if you look at the clock face. And so there's always, yeah, a little bit of generally a, a crosswind of, of some description. Helpful in summer quite often uh, hurting in winter. If you get the cold morning winds out of, you'll sometimes get it sort of into you out of the left as well. So it is all over the shop, but it's, yeah, I'd say the wind you play mostly is out of about four o'clock. Okay. A little like, like for those that know Royal Doorknock number two, it's a green that it's not terrible to miss it and have a chance of an up and down and walk away with four and say, I've lost nothing to the field. I was going to ask if interstate or overseas visitors head to Adelaide for a few days during a during a big trip to Australia, what else would you suggest to them in terms of rounding out their South Australian leg of their travels, apart from playing Royal Adelaide? What sort of things should they do? Okay. Um, if it's other golfs that they're interested in, then there's four what we call the Adelaide Sandbelt, um, four clubs, five courses that comprise those. Um, which are all worth a go, and that's uh, Glenelg, Kiyonga, and two courses at the Grange, East and West Course. You could play rock, paper, scissors with yourself and decide which one of those you're going to play. Um, they've all got um, reasons to play them, depending on what you like. The As far as other um, touristy-type things to see, we're surrounded by vineyards, which is a tremendous thing. Um, a few years ago, I moved a little bit further down the coast, and we're literally a 10-minute drive from McLaren Vale, but I'm still part of the Adelaide urban area. Um, it's that close. Um, I moved from the Adelaide Hills to down the coast, and again in the Adelaide Hills, I was 10 minutes away from world-class, cool-climate wineries. So I think if you don't like wine when you get to Adelaide, you should like it by the time you leave. <laughs> um, or certainly try to work out why you don't drink wine. Go, go and try it. There's so, so many great winemakers um, many of whom I'm happy to say are friends and members at Royal Adelaide and uh, quite the experience to sit over a, a bottle of wine with the winemaker and uh, can tell you everything that you need to know and some you don't about that particular wine. 
Um, the Adelaide's a bit of a step off for the outback experiences, um, but if you've only got two or three and you just want to, you know, so it's quite close to to um, desert bush camping and that sort of thing. Um, there's lots of good native wildlife. Um, overseas visitors will get the chance to cuddle the koala and look at kangaroos. At the moment, there are pandas in the Adelaide Zoo. I think they're the only ones in Australia, Chinese giant pandas, and they've been trying to um, make them for the 20 years or so that they've been here. Not, not that long, but a long time. Um, I don't know whether they're set to stay or moving on. Adelaide, being a smaller population, hasn't had the development pressure that you've seen in Sydney and Melbourne, CBD areas and what have you. So there's some great examples of uh, colonial, post-colonial uh, buildings and architects, sandstone buildings right in the heart of the city. Great place to walk around. It's a fairly flat place, so um, great for bikes as well. Um, a very easy place to get around. The, the local food scene is, is tremendous. Local produce, uh, the Flurio Peninsula where I live is yeah becoming well and well renowned for uh, the local food scene. So yeah, eat, drink, be merry. I guess when you come to Adelaide, mate, play a bit of golf. Yeah, there's no no shortage of things to do. I'm I'm I reckon the tendency for many travelling to Australia is to to stick to the eastern seaboard, but they can they can tell by your words that there's there's a lot that they should there's a lot justifying a trip a little further west to Adelaide. So yeah. Now Terry, we we also on this podcast are noted uh, fans of Port Ferry Golf Club. Now Port Ferry's on the way. You now it's most of the way, but it's on the way to Melbourne. If someone chose to drive between Melbourne and Adelaide, they obviously have the Great Ocean Road from Geelong all the way out to sort of Port Ferry, Portland way. Yep. What's the rest of that drive like? I mean, obviously you drive through the Coonawarra wine region in case you needed one more wine region. <laughs> but in terms of scenery and, and other, maybe some some quirky golf, is there something along the way that breaks up that trip? Yeah, well, uh, Robe in the southeast is a, a tremendous spot. Uh, a very good golf course, which has had some holes added recently. They lost took away the worst golf holes for, for housing, I think, and built uh, six new holes up in the dunes. Um, that's certainly worth a place. It's sort of crayfish capital of the southeast as well, if you like your seafood, and who doesn't? One particularly very good pub, I recall spending a few days out there. Um, open fires, nice wine and, and crayfish. As in you and slept at the pub overnight or you just went to the pub and stayed for several days? I just curled up in front of the fire for many, many hours. Keep bringing me, I think, I'm pretty sure they had some sort of stout on tap there as well. Um, yes. Uh, so, yes, so the, the Coonawarra, the Panola and places like that. Yeah, it's a, and it's a nice, easy drive as well. There's limestone caves. There's lots of touristy stuff that I've, I've never done. As you want as a local, that you don't, you don't do them until you get some visitor from interstate that wants to go and see these things. And you think, how good is this? Yeah, it's a, and it's a nice drive, as I say, and you, you round it off with Port Ferry and... Uh, What's that? Is it Peterborough? That's a little yeah. nine, uh, which I've walked but haven't played yet. But I might. Uh, I'm off to uh, Barwon Heads in in April via a, a stay at Port Ferry, so I might um, add an extra day and finally play that place as well. Very nice. Uh, yeah. No, but a nice easy drive, and yeah, lots more wine country. Mount Gambier's got a, a, a few bits and pieces to look at as well. So, in closing, on Royal Adelaide, I was trying to I was trying to think of a, a comp. 
for it, a comparison that is difficult because of what we talked about before. It sort of is very much its own beast. And I want to suggest that, and we beat up on Metro too much on this podcast. We don't beat up on it. We just use it as a comparison because it is very good. But I feel like Royal Adelaide is what Metro could be if Metro had three or four world-class holes. You know, a flat ground, smart golf course, nice and firm, well presented. Metro just doesn't have the three or four, maybe five incredible holes that that RA does. Yeah, we Metro. You'd consider a flatter site than RA, I guess. Yeah, we, yeah. Um, which yeah, we give RA you know the potential, yeah, well, the advantage over it as far as you know being able to produce better holes. But yeah, I think I think you're right. The um, the greens are, are similar. They're they're subtle, but not easy to read. Um, bunkering adjacent. Well, we don't have the cut-in bunkers like Metro does. Um, but yeah, plenty of bunkering near greens. Um, probably not as difficult to avoid as the Metro ones, in my experience, anyway. So yeah, yeah, probably not a bad comparison if you were to like for like from Sandbelt to uh, to RA. We got a question from Adrian Logue regarding the bunkering style at Royal Adelaide as well. Yep. Um, talking about it potentially having a tiny bit of grass on the face and, and separating itself from sandbelt style. But they they do seem um, very characteristic of the, of the, of the terrain and the, and the soil and, and the location at Royal Adelaide. They seem to fit. They are a little different to what you see on other top-end courses in Australia, but they work, don't they? They do. Um, I'm struggling to think of too many with a real grass face. There's a lot of... With, with the sand, there, there's quite a lot of um, you know, strength in that they can build a fairly straight mm. vertical face where they have to. Um, the, there's still a couple of bunkering styles uh, across the course that they're you know, moving to to the one, and probably the the best example of that differences on the one hole is the 18th. The bunkering near the green on the right-hand side just sits into the ground so well, a la the ones at 14 and, and elsewhere, that the fairway bunkers on left and right, sort of, I don't know, you might call the one on the right a bunker in the sky where it's circular, um, sitting up, sitting slightly above the ground. Uh, the ones on the left, a smaller sort of version of that. Um, Those ones on the left are the, still a Peter Thompson remnant, aren't they? Yeah, I think they were done... I think as a response to some professional play mm-hmm. where they could, you know, basically hitting it anywhere. Um, as most misguided architecture is, yeah, a response yeah, to some pro. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah, recall yeah, looking at those myself. and they, like, instead of that, instead of them, like a bunker being an absence of ground, those bunkers were like someone had a chocolate drop mound that they then just scalped the top off and put some sand in. Like it was yeah, a, yeah. it was a landform versus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, someone's built a mound and then, yeah, cut cut the ground, like the fairway bunker on eight as well. Um, I guess that's the other example. The the bunker that's sort of short, 30, 20 metres short of eight green sits very nicely within the surround. Uh, a little bit of a, a face, you know, the face is a little bit exposed and it, at you, but the, the entrance to it is quite nice, whereas the, the dry bunker is just, yeah, sitting up high, um, again, cut out of a mound and circular and not very interesting. Mm. All right. I reckon that might have done us for questions. We might have taken up enough of your time, Terry. Okay. I'll leave it to the uh, the best left-handed guest on the podcast to come. Well, two left-handers. I hadn't actually thought about, about that. that. Indeed. Yeah. Two lefties in one episode. Yeah, this is going to kill me. I'm told constantly at the golf course that it's a, this course favours left-handers. 
And, uh, yeah, they listen to this and say that's all they had on, left-handed. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. It's been fantastic to get some of your expertise and it's just reminded me how overdue I am to tee one up at, at Royal Adelaide. So yeah, come on over. It soon. So as I mentioned earlier, a full episode with Greg Chalmers is coming up in the near future, but we wanted to snip out some great stuff he had to say about Royal Adelaide to cap out this episode. Uh, and, of course, brought to you for the longest time by Angus and Grace Go Golfing. Uh, spent a bit of time with Matt last week when the NLU boys were in Sydney and I uh, was wearing my Golf Daddy T-shirt and Matt told me that Golf Daddy line is actually being run out of town. He's not going to do it next year. It's going to be one of those things that if you've got it, you've got it. And if you've missed out, tough. So jump on angusandgracegogolfing.com. Uh, have a look at the Golf Daddy hats, Golf Daddy T-shirts that are still available. Uh, gets a lot of comments when I wear it. Um, I am literally, with two children, a golf daddy. Uh, but, you know, you go to the beach and you see 20-year-old women all lying around in different colours of golf daddy hats. You see young blokes with amazingly managed mullets wearing them down at the beach. It's um, it's a thing in Sydney. So I feel like I'm kind of dragging the brand down a little bit with my sloppy rig in one. But Get out there, get some Angus and Grace. The three-button pocket polo is selling like hotcakes at 110 bucks, which is highway robbery for such a great article. Uh, so give it a look. Jump in and have a look there. Maddie. you, summertime, been giving the shorts a bit of a run? Yeah, very, very happy to be donning them. The three-button pocket polo. Uh, I've made a little bit of a foray into the no-laying-up range as well, grabbed one of their hats, grabbed some of their tees. So, um, yeah, just stacks of good stuff to get from Matt. Mm. Unfortunately, I have a gigantic head. And so the no-laying-up cap that that Matt Matt provided me, the no-laying-up bucket hat, uh, my, my nine-year-old daughter is now the owner of both of those and looks a lot cooler in them than I ever would. So... <laughs> People with regular-sized heads have it so good and they don't even realise it. All right, time for Greg Chalmers? Let's go. Now, Matty mentioned that um, your, your, your achievement at Royal Adelaide 25 years ago, like literally half a lifetime ago for you. I mean, that must it must feel like you blinked and got to today. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah don't feel that old, but I'm 50 now. So, yeah, it was a long time ago, um, 1998, and uh, honestly... Um, there's pieces of it that are very clear and other pieces are very fuzzy. I actually watched a little bit of it on YouTube yesterday before we, we chatted here today just to refresh my memory on a couple of things. But, yeah, really cool sort of moment um, and a week for me. I probably didn't realise how great it was until I won a second time. Um, at, you know, certainly um, at the time you're young, um, you know, I'm only 25. Uh, I, I'd had a great year in Europe. I, I probably didn't realise the importance of it in terms of as an achievement until till later on. You seemed like you're in disbelief when I watched the watched mm. that presentation back. You know, you, you're saying all the names of the people who've won it, and you just kind of seem just completely disbelieving that this is your story. Yeah, it, it's definitely definitely true. I, I definitely didn't have. Um, I, I, I was definitely this, this, you know, very Australian in that you don't get too big for your boots. And so I, and it probably at certain points in my career, it, it's, it's probably held me back a little bit. 
Um, even though it's a great person, it can be a good personality trait. It's not sometimes great for high level achievement. Definitely that played out as what you see there is that it's almost like there's part of me that watches it and goes, dude, it's okay to sort of go, Hey, this is awesome. This is pretty good. Like I just did this versus, Oh, gee, golly shucks. How lucky did I get? Um, the fact is I finished 25th on the order of merit in Europe that year. I went to Q school the week before the Australian open and finished third for us Q school in the final stage. I mean, I played a lot of good golf. I, pl- I was playing really well that year. And uh, at, I look back at that and wish I'd have been more appreciative of uh, the journey I was on at the time. Harking back to your win though at Royal Adelaide, but you were talking about the way in which to approach it and celebrating the fact that you'd done something really good. Reading down the leaderboard of the people who finished behind you, Appleby Senior, Allenby, Faldo, Pampling, O'Malley, Riley, Davis, Grady, Parry, Couples, Carlos Franco, Greg Turner, some bloke, Norman, down the list behind you, Ogilvy, mm. O'Hearn. Like that is a massive list of scalps to claim in one week. That's a huge win. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and look, I think one of the coolest things there when you talk about things like that, you're talking about some of the people that I grew up watching and admiring. Uh, certainly, you know, you, when you rattle off some of those Australian names, like I'm playing with Peter Senior in the second last group. I've been, you know, a young man watching him on TV for years. I beat, you know, Greg Norman obviously was a hero of mine in terms of who I love to watch play the game and how he went about it. So that's the crazy thing about golf is sometimes you can end up competing against people that you feel like, oh, I was only, it was only a few years ago. I was on TV at home sitting in my lounge room watching you do this. You had won the Australian amateur in 93 at Royal Hobart. Had you played in the year prior in 1992? Michael Campbell won that year and that was held at Royal Adelaide. I did actually. I watched, um, we went out because the Australian amateur is coincides it used to be finished just before the inter, the interstate teams championship so every team had sent eight players from every state to play the amateur and then stay follow on and play in the interstate teams championship and jared mosley was in the final against michael campbell uh so we went out to watch mose play mose was actually my roommate sometimes when i played uh, uh two-man teams and teams um whether it's for australia or, and or Western Australia. So, yeah, we were all in town. We watched uh, that. That was probably one of my first sort of experiences at at that golf course. I hadn't played um, the South Australian Invitational. Used to be played there as well. I came back later on, um, oh, and and won that. I think the following year, uh, as a after I'd won the amateur, had a really pretty decent year as a as an amateur. So I think I came back to Royal Adelaide and won that as well. Um, it's a great golf course. Really great golf course. It's got some really iconic holes and some. I haven't been back in a long time, but uh, some of the, my memory of the golf course was uh, it was just world class. Do you have some favourite holes that stick in your memory from Royal Adelaide? Yes, yes, it, always the third. Uh, but the third was you know a little drivable hole, very narrow green. You know we used to even lay up sometimes in that. Nowadays, I think everyone would just go for it. But when we played the open there, I remember it was it was very heavy rough on the right and very heavy rough on the short left. So if you if you didn't hit it in a good spot off the tee, you you ended up with uh, you know an almost impossible shot to get it even on the green. Uh, Eleven was a great hole, just be wait just the way it was framed. Uh, that second shot, um, you know, kind of sitting in amongst there was a bunch of trees over the back. Um, it was just it just looked great. I thought. 
there's a lot about and 16 the par three comes to mind as well i i love i love a short par three with kind of an upside down bowl green um it was a cool when it was windy that target feels and plays very narrow um even though you've only got a short club and it uh it really gets your attention so yeah there's a lot about that golf course that is just absolutely world class and i think that's why you see it you know rank so highly and be great if an open went back there i think that'd be really cool Harking back to Royal Adelaide for a sec, Greg, do you remember the equipment you used to win that first Australian Open? Because it was two years pre-Pro V1. Yes. I remember I had a set of Titleist. I think I had Titleist DCIs or I had, yeah, probably, I believe Titleist DCIs. I remember my driver was a Titleist 905J, I think. Um the, one of the early models of Titleist, and I can't remember the name of the brand name of the shaft. I just know they don't exist anymore. Um, but I remember what it looked like. It looked like it had a uh, like tiger stripes on the shaft. It was a pretty fancy looking thing at the time. But uh, yeah, I do remember most of the stuff. And I think I had a Pro Trage Titleist Pro Trage three wood, oh, which it, yeah, great three wood. Uh, look at it now, and I'm like, how did I hit this thing? I still got it in the garage. Um, downstairs but yeah it, that was yeah that's what we had and you know it's just a different I'm glad I played in that era I'm glad I got to see what it was like because once we got rid of you know all that ballada golf balls and we you know started using all the stuff we use now um, some of the shots you used to hit were just cool they were just cool you know the low rising long iron you know starts low and it's got a ton of spin on it and then climbs and sits it was just a cool shot to be able to see and you just just don't see that anymore. So um, I'm glad I got to, you know, start the game with all that kind of stuff. It's because it was a lot of fun. I've got one more to get you out of here on, which is you're bringing a group of, of Dallas area golfers out to Australia to show them what Australian golf is, ignoring the logistics of moving between cities. If you can show them five, five or six courses, what's your itinerary look like? So I think... You, you'd fly into Sydney first and you've got to hit New South Wales Golf Club in Sydney. Um, I think you have to see that to kick off. I think some of the holes on that um, on that golf course are iconic and it's great just to, you know, you walk over that hill and see Botany Bay in the background. I think that's, you've got to see that. That'd be a great place and it's obviously a great city for everyone to travel to from a tourist point. So that'd be cool. Uh, but really from a golf purist standpoint, um, I'm hitting Melbourne and I'm hitting places like Kingston Heath um, I actually don't I, – I mean, you can go to Royal if you want. I actually – I love Kingston Heath and Victoria more in a lot of ways. Um, and then I actually haven't played some of the newer stuff. I'm really excited to see what happens at Seven Mile Beach because I follow – Matt Goggins, a good friend of mine, and I follow what they're doing down there and what Clates is doing. I haven't played um, the other one down in uh, in Tassie as well. Or the one – is it Fraser Island or is an island down there I haven't oh, been King to? King Island? Yeah. King, King Island. Yeah, yeah. Some of that looks pretty cool um for people and um if you're going to get across to um uh to adelaide you've obviously got to hit royal adelaide but i love kuyonga as well i think kuyonga is a phenomenal golf course and really enjoyed playing there as a pro and then as you head across to perth um lake Karanup comes to mind if you want a really funky place i'd go to joondalup you know if you really want like an american experience like ladders out of the bunkers and like quarries everywhere. That's got some pretty wild holes on it that are fun for you know, for someone to see. Um, 
Yeah, look, there's as a destination, I said to someone on the other day, you could play the PGA Tour on, you know, a handful of courses in Australia and they might be the top five courses you play on the whole tour um, because they're just some high-quality stuff and we're blessed to have it. Um, and that you, when people talk about it that, that are great players that you see, you know, I saw Rory come out with a comment recently um, talking about the Australian Open and it should be part of, you know, world golf traveling schedule if, if it comes about and uh, when two people talk about the golf course we had they're not it's it's not something they're just saying they actually mean it like and uh, and so the players we talk amongst each other and everyone has on their bucket list to get down to australia and play because our golf courses are world class